0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B Y T E.com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte.
1: Hey, if you're hearing this, this is the promo for a new series called Strangers in China. It's the latest show on the Seneca Network, powered by SubChina. Strangers in China is a show where we talk to interesting people, we see their lives and struggles, we see their innovation. And through that, we can see how Chinese culture is changing. If you like what you hear, hit that subscribe button and get ready for our launch. Hi, you're listening to
2: Strangers in China. This is Cherie.
1: And this is Clay. What do we do here at Strangers in China?
2: We interview people.
1: Who do we interview, though?
2: Outliers,
1: rebels, creatives. Weirdos.
2: Yeah, definitely weirdos.
1: We wanna see China in a different way, hear from different voices.
0: I don't want to conform to the social values, like um, they rush into marriage, but I don't want to do that. And I just want to be a free spirit.
1: We talk to people about those moments where everything changed.
0: The moments I have like 200 people in the audience, everybody's laughing then they can see like, oh, he's doing something right. So when my mom and dad interrogated me, saying, why you spend all your time with this girl? Are you gay? I was like, oh my god, thank you for giving me a word to describe myself.
1: We get the nuance of how culture is shifting. Personally, I don't like definition about everything, because I think a definition could be a limitation. We know the struggles that people are working through.
2: Back in my hometown, the mindset is pretty singular. And people are not used to
1: the idea of people having different values than the traditional ones.
0: Not just stereotypes, you know.
1: China don't have free speech. Do you have? No, you don't
0: have total free speech. And you shouldn't have total free speech. You always should be afraid of saying something.
1: Someone will have invite us for tea. You know, sorry, what? invite us for tea in china that means you get censored like you have a conversation with people from government what we say like in chinese like you invite for tea through these struggles we hear how people change and innovate
0: um like restrictions are horrible like censorship is horrible but when you have those restrictions you become more creative You just find ways around, like, you need to think all the time, like, how can you work around with the system, and that can be a very um, interesting challenge.
1: We get the catharsis. And I feel like the whole world is in front of me, and I feel, finally, I'm becoming myself. But when I get to China, everybody tell me, you are so old. Without the recording, without the exposure, without... People slowly fade into their non-existence, and that's really dangerous. Then all of this effort that we made is, like, you know, going to waste. You're listening to Strangers in China. Strangers in China premieres on September 19th. You can subscribe anywhere podcasts are found. Subscribe and hear the voices of New China.
2: Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SupChina. SupChina is simply the best way there is to keep on top of all the important news coming out of China. Our indispensable daily newsletter features a roundup of the news from hundreds of sources, plus links to original pieces on our website. Sign up for SupChina access, and you get all that and much more, with stories on everything from the Belt and Road, to local entrepreneurship and innovation in China, from the travails of ethnically Chinese researchers in the U.S. in this age of creeping McCarthyism to China's ongoing extra-legal internment of hundreds of thousands or, by some estimates, over a million Uyghurs and other Muslims in China's Xinjiang region. We're sure you'll agree it's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Gould, coming to you today from the Seneca South Studio in Durham, North Carolina. Joining me from Nashville, Tennessee, is the chosen one, Jeremy Goldcorn, editor-in-chief <laughs> of SubChina. Who who last week was heard to say, I hereby order all of our great American companies to ignore the insane Twitter rantings of strident, narcissistic, blowhard nationalists. Now, Jeremy, you know that is not a nice way to talk about Global Times editor, Hu Xijin, right?
0: Oh, you know, I've said far worse things about him. (laughs) Yes, anyway.
2: Yeah. Anyway, our guest this week is Andy Rothman, investment strategist with Matthews Asia, who's been on our show a number of times now and always has a really smart take and usually one that is quite at odds with conventional wisdom. Andy was previously at CLSA in Hong Kong before coming back to the US after a long diplomatic career focused on China. Like Jeremy and me, uh, Andy spent, what, 20 plus years in China, all told. Andy, welcome back to Seneca. Thanks for having me back, guys.
0: Andy, before we get started on the economic topics, let's take a moment to remember Sidney Rittenberg, who died on August 24 at the age of 98. Andy, you were quite close to Sidney, and we thought perhaps you could share a story or say a few words about this remarkable man. For those who may not know who he is, Sidney Rittenberg is famously the man who stayed behind, an American soldier linguist who joined the Chinese Communist Party, got to know senior leaders like Mao and... uh, spent a total of 16 years in solitary confinement
3: well thanks for that opportunity yeah i had the pleasure honor of being a friend of sydney's for the last 20 years or so Mm. Uh, he he died just a few days ago at the age of 98 Uh, so a long and uh, amazing life i really learned a couple of things from sydney over the years and um, one of them was just to watch him be not bitter and, and happy in life after a lot of the real difficulties and challenges that he went through in China in a few decades ago. And he was still a man who looked at life in an optimistic and, and positive way. And that was really interesting. And I think the other thing I took away from my friendship with Sidney was his ability to look back with clear eyes on the mistakes that he made in his life. Yes, um, yes, his in the his his sticking with Mao as the right man for China for way too long. His behavior during the Cultural Revolution, when he acknowledged that uh, he hurt a lot of other people's lives, and I think the the ability to look back and and recognize accept responsibility for. Um, apologize for mistakes and, and help others learn from those kinds of mistakes is really valuable.
2: He continued right up until the very end to be actively engaged in conversations about China and about uh, U.S. policy toward China. Uh, Jeremy and I were lucky enough to spend a few hours with him at his home in Arizona a couple of years ago, uh, and it was certainly one of the most memorable interviews that we've ever done. I know, uh, speaking for myself, I think, Jeremy, you'd agree, yeah?
0: Absolutely. And, uh, you know, we actually talked about uh, the things you just mentioned, Andy, Uh, Both his, uh, you know, I was asked him about his extraordinary ability to not become bitter about so many things. Uh, And also, we asked him about the mistakes he'd made, and he was very clear-eyed about them, which is um, unusual. Hmm.
3: Yes, and so um, I would encourage listeners to go back and listen to, I think you you guys did two uh, episodes uh, of the podcast. That's right. And then also on on one of the previous podcasts that I was on with you guys, when we did the book session at the end, uh, I recommended Sidney's autobiography, The Man Who Stayed Behind, and also his wife Yulin Rittenberg's autobiography, which is a, a, a great read of that period of history from a different perspective. And that's called After the Bitter Comes the Sweet. That's
2: right. Yeah, my heart really goes out to you, right now. And I, I, I wish her some comfort in just knowing that he had just such a long and wonderful life that touched so many people in a positive way. We'll make sure to put up links to those two shows and to the two books that Andy recommended in the show notes to this podcast. So now
0: we turn from some sad news to some news that is uh, just plain bonkers and crazy. And I speak, of course, of uh, the uh, uh, great uh, China-U.S. techno trade war. Um, At SubChina, we are counting July 6, 2018 as day one of the trade war. That was when the first Trump tariffs took effect, which makes today, when we are recording this show, day 418. I don't want to go all the way back to that date, but Andy, could we review the events of the trade war since the last major shift in early May this year? That's when, according to the U.S. side at least, things blew up just ahead of a major meeting. American negotiators claimed the Chinese side had returned a draft agreement with too many major revisions. And Trump and Lighthizer accused Beijing of reneging on many items they thought had already been agreed to and would be in the document. What did you think of that claim, and where did things stand after that?
3: You know, Jeremy, I think that's a great framework for talking about the problems between the U.S. and China right now, because it illustrates what I think are the biggest issues. First, from the U.S. side, I've been arguing for quite some time that there was eventually going to be a deal between the two sides, because I've always felt that this was just part of Donald Trump's shtick, that he needs to upend things and create solutions to the problems that he has found, and that in the case of China, that's what he's looking for. And I still believe today he's looking for a solution or a deal, because I think he understands that without a deal with China, and an escalation from a tariff dispute into a full-blown trade war, his chances of getting re-elected are increasingly slim. But I think that the president has been struggling with a path to a deal because his art of the deal tactics haven't really worked well with the Chinese government. Maybe they haven't worked all that well with the governments in Mexico or Canada or Brussels, so I think he's still struggling to figure out how to get there, and that was part of the problem in May, was the Chinese weren't sure what Donald Trump really wanted from them. Did he want to have them change the overall structure of their economy, or did he just want them to buy more stuff? Did he really want them to better protect intellectual property rights, or did he just really want them to buy more stuff? <laughs> and. The other part of the problem is on the Chinese side, which is in part because they're confused. They don't know exactly what Donald Trump wants for them. But I think also they've been struggling with, on the one hand, they do want to do a deal as long as it's reasonable. But their tactics haven't worked all that well because they have misread U.S. Trade Representative Lighthizer and the rest of the US team. So for example, one of the issues was in May that according to the US side, the Chinese reneged on a lot of commitments they'd made in the negotiations before. Well, those of us who have negotiated with the Chinese government in the past, so you referred in the beginning to my uh, 17 years in the State Department, so I have a little bit of experience in this, were, were not surprised at all to hear that the Chinese, after agreeing to something for several rounds, had come back and said, We've changed our mind. That's a typical tactic for them. And in most cases in the past, there would have been people on the US side who would have said, yeah, right, sure, let's move on. They would have passed a note to the head of delegation saying, this is just their tactics. Let's not get too bogged down on this. But I don't think there was anyone in the room on the US side who understood this. And I think the Chinese misplayed their hand, not understanding that. Hmm. Now, one more point on that is from talking to people on both the Chinese and US sides involved in these negotiations. I think there's also a a knowledge gap here. Uh, If you look at the reports about what blew up in May, um, apparently it was the Chinese saying, we're no longer going to agree to change our laws to codify the commitments that we make to the United States. Instead, we're going to use administrative regulations and state council or cabinet office proclamations. and Lighthizer, who's a lawyer, um, didn't like that at all and felt it was a, a slap at him. But from the Chinese perspective, I think they were saying, look, we can do all the things we commit to really, really quickly and easily via regulation and proclamation. And in China, those regulations and proclamations have the force of law. Right. Whereas the legal process is longer and more complicated. And I've spoken to a lot of American companies in China since that time in May. And with only one exception, all of the companies I've spoken to operating on the ground in China have said they're fine with administrative regulations and proclamations, because in China, you know, there is no rule of law. So everything depends on does the government, does the party leadership want to make things happen? And if they issue a administrative regulation or proclamation and make it known to their companies and their officials across the country that they want things done, it will be done. And so I'm not sure that the people on the U.S. negotiating team are aware of that.
2: Very good. Andy, the next major escalation came very, very soon on the heels of, of that blow up in May and involved not only uh, the increase in tariffs from 10% to 25% on, I think it was $200 billion worth of goods, which was announced on May 10th uh, after Trump threatened it a few days before that, but also very significantly, there was the addition of, of Huawei to the entity list. Uh, help us to understand what the Trump administration was thinking by the timing of this, and maybe to understand how this was perceived in Beijing, how this move looked from Beijing's perspective?
3: Well, trying to divine what strategy and tactics are really at play in Washington on this is pretty difficult. Right, um, And there are obviously different parts of the U.S. government who view these in different ways. There is certainly a significant Uh, share of the Trump administration and the national security part that views Huawei as a threat and a risk and a company that needs to be stopped globally, not just kept out of the United States. But at the same time, the president himself seems to be indicating that he is prepared to use the Huawei issue as a, a negotiating tactic and for leverage that can be traded away. So, Um, I think it's really difficult to say right now where that will turn up in the end. But certainly, I think the president seems inclined to treat this on a tactical basis. From the Chinese side, it's also complicated. Uh, I think the Chinese government has responded to all of the Huawei stuff in uh, a horrible way. Uh, and I'm referring to the detention of two Canadian citizens.
2: Yeah, Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor. Yeah.
3: Yes, who've now been detained for uh, over a couple of hundred days, That's I right. think, and I believe without access to attorneys. And, um, and contrast this to the detention of the Huawei CFO Hmong in Canada, who is at home. Uh, with her own private security guards and seems to be able to leave her house and go to yoga classes.
0: Andy, I'm so glad you mentioned this, because I I really believe the case of these two Canadians has been under, there hasn't been enough attention paid to it. This is a really outrageous and an extremely frightening side of uh, the global tensions, and particularly the US-China tensions, with poor Canada stuck in the middle Indeed, with a government that doesn't seem able to get it together to do anything about this. Anyway, excuse the little rant. Let me end this interruption here.
3: Yeah, I, I you know, I think this needs to be resolved on the part of the government in Beijing. Uh, they need to treat uh, the two Canadians as they would like Chinese to be treated in Canada and the United States. And that's not happening, and this is sending the wrong message um, and is further politicizing what should be a technical issue. Uh, So I'm hoping we're going to see some progress on this, but certainly I don't see any signs in that direction at the moment. And I would also like to see Huawei as a company speak out against this kind of retaliation.
2: That's right. I think their voice would really have some weight. If they actually came out and said something to that effect, I think... That would yes, and mean, I've
3: I've mentioned this to people at Huawei, um, but um, they they didn't have any response.
2: It's huh. unfortunate.
3: So I, I I don't want to get too bogged down in the day to day back and forth on, <laughs> on the tariffs. <laughs> uh, well, it's because, impossible
2: to keep straight anyway, right? I, I'm I've completely yeah. <laughs> lost track now. Uh, list one, list two, list three. All these different rates. That I have no idea who's responding to what anymore. <laughs>
3: Right. And as soon as we wrap up this recording, something else will happen, which will change the story at least for 24 hours. (laughs)
0: That's right. No doubt while we are doing this recording, that will happen.
3: (laughs) I've I've turned off my Twitter feed while we're speaking. Um, But let, let, let me instead just explain why I am out on a fairly lonely limb in continuing to forecast that I believe there will be a trade deal between Trump and Xi roughly by the end of the year. Um, and, you know, I I I know it doesn't always look like it's moving in that right direction, but what I've learned over the last twenty plus years of of doing this is that you have to stick with fundamentals and a framework to avoid changing your view every day based on what the latest news flow is, especially in this administration. So my view is that from the beginning, Trump, as I said earlier, just wanted to do his own deal. So not an Obama deal or a Bush deal or a Clinton deal with China, uh, one that he could proclaim would be better. Um, And that as he struggled to find a way to get there, he resorted to tactics which he felt worked for him in Manhattan real estate, but they didn't work so well. And I think now increasingly the president is aware that if the current situation continues, which by definition means further escalation and further retaliation and this blowing up into a trade war rather than just a tariff dispute, then the impact on the U.S. economy and U.S. equity markets will be severe. And that will have a severe impact on his re-election prospects. And that's why I think we routinely see the president saying that he still wants to do a deal. On the Chinese side, I think it's very clear that the tariffs have had a modest impact on the Chinese economy, a similar impact to what they're having here in the United States, which is that it's had a negative impact on business sentiment and therefore business investment spending or CapEx. Companies are just seeing such a high degree of uncertainty that they're not willing to invest and they're also reducing uh, production. Now in both countries, the consumer has held up quite well and that's important because a lot of people don't realize and we've talked about this when i've been on the podcast in the past that china is now a consumer and services led economy just like the united states and that part of the economy is holding up pretty well so what xi jinping is mostly worried about is not the tariffs what he's worried about is this blowing up even further particularly the idea that if it went to a full-blown trade war might donald trump call up intel and qualcomm and texas instruments and NVIDIA and say, you're not shipping any more chips to China. and that would be We will get
2: to that in in a bit here and and we'll talk a little bit more about the sort of pain that China may or may not be experiencing but you know we do want to actually get through a little more of the minutiae in the months of of June, July and August so uh, Jeremy you wanted to ask him something about the G20 meeting or the the relaxation Yeah
0: Yeah, so I mean there was another apparent relaxation ahead of the G20 meeting at the end of June and then another whipsaw by Trump just two weeks afterwards which is becoming pretty routine by now so let's just ignore all that and fast forward to early August which was when China allowed the renminbi to depreciate past what many believe is a symbolically or psychologically important line of seven to the dollar. This was followed very quickly on August 6th with the U.S. Department of Treasury declaring China a currency manipulator which Steve Mnuchin apparently did on Trump's orders. So did China in fact manipulate its currency in this instance and if it did would it meet the requirements to actually be a currency manipulator?
3: Okay, so let's break that up into a couple of different questions. Is China manipulating its currency? Of course they are. But they're doing it in a way which is actually beneficial to the United States economy. Um, So let's look at how the... Chinese are managing their exchange rate over the last few years and and again today. What they're doing is basically saying that the direction of their currency, the renminbi, against the U.S. dollar will be determined entirely by the strength or weakness of the U.S. dollar. So the dollar strong, the renminbi is going to be weak, and the opposite. But they're also intervening to prevent the renminbi from moving up or down by more than five or six percent in any one calendar year, because they think that is a range which is tolerable for Chinese companies in terms of planning. And they also, up until recently, thought that that was a range that would keep Senator Schumer off their backs. And so last year, for example, uh, the dollar index, the DXY, was up about one and a half percent and the renminbi was down about two and a half percent against the dollar not very dramatic. Uh, This year, up until the beginning of this week, just a few days ago, um, the dollar index, the DXY, was up about 2%, and the renminbi was down about 2.5%. So nothing dramatic, nothing on the scale of providing a currency advantage to China, or on a scale to mitigate the impact of the tariffs. So... The only way that the renminbi is going to appreciate in the near future is if the dollar is weak, and that doesn't seem likely at the moment. But what they're doing certainly does not meet the criteria of the US law on currency manipulation. That's why repeatedly in recent years, and just as recently as May, Secretary Mnuchin and his predecessors have found that China was not manipulating its currency according to US law. So you're right, I think, Mnuchin was just tired and worn out by the number of times that President Trump asked him to reverse that decision, so he went and did it. But the other key element is it just does not matter.
2: Right. On this show a couple of years ago, uh, before the trade war began in earnest, we were talking about what actually happens when a country is named a currency manipulator by Treasury. Uh, Can you refresh uh, my memory on that? That was, I found, very, very interesting.
3: Yeah, under the law. The US has to either engage directly with the offending country in negotiations to try and solve the problem over the course of a year, or they can do it in conjunction with the International Monetary Fund, the IMF. So basically, there are no real penalties involved, just negotiations. And of course, the Chinese and the US are negotiating all the time. Uh, in his letter, uh, noting that he had found China to be manipulating its currency, secretary mnuchin said he would be engaging immediately with the imf but we also know that the imf has said publicly for some time now that they do not believe the chinese government is manipulating its currency and they believe the currency is fairly valued right now so this is really not going anywhere and the chinese knew that and that's why this has not turned out to be a big issue they haven't made a lot of noise about it and also to get back to one of your questions um jeremy uh, passing seven turned out to be a one-day news cycle story. Um, the, we knew this was coming for a long time. The Chinese Central Bank acknowledged it was coming. They've said, the IMF has said, this was not a significant change. And um, I don't think we're going to hear people talking about it again.
0: So did Trump just do this to piss China off? You know, it was a signal to his base, or maybe my pet theory would be that he's so desperate, he's just lashing out like a toddler with whatever words or weapons he, he can find.
3: Uh, you're asking me to divine his motives. I'm not <laughs> sure I can answer that question. <laughs> okay. but, but let's
2: no keep in mind. Mind. Next question. Toddler <laughs> based theories seem to be pretty accurate. Right.
3: Let, let's keep in mind that the president's been consistent here. He was saying during the campaign that as soon as he took office, he was going to declare China a currency manipulator.
0: Day one, right? That was a
3: day one right. promise, wasn't And, it? you know, um, so now he's done it.
2: Andy, when the bond yield curve inversion happened in mid-August, with the market reacting to that and seeing its biggest single-day losses in three years, I think it was at that point, uh, with the threat of a recession suddenly hinting that maybe the political business cycle come election season next year would maybe not be so favorable to, to his re-election bid, uh, Trump said that he was going to hold off on some tariffs, and many were saying that he had basically blinked. Uh, he was going to reduce the tariffs or not go ahead and raise tariffs on certain categories of popular consumer goods like like smartphones, uh, at least not until after the Christmas shopping season. This seemed, at least to some people, to be an admission that China is not, in fact, pouring money into the U.S. Treasury in in tariffs, but instead that they are being paid by American importers who are then, you know, passing those costs on directly to consumers. Uh, Do you have a sense for whether Trump knows about the impact of tariffs or whether he genuinely believes that China absorbs all the costs of tariffs?
3: What does president Trump know? And when did he know it? Um, I I don't think I can answer that question. Um, (laughs) I think, you know, let's just say for listeners who are new to this story, that there is probably not a single economist in the United States outside of Peter Navarro, who works for the president, who believes that the bilateral trade deficit is a problem or who believes that China is paying these tariffs. It's clear from studies done by the New York Federal Reserve, by the University of Chicago and Princeton and National Bureau of Economic Research, and I could go on and on that it's clear these tariffs are being paid by American consumers. And the last remaining list of Chinese imports into the United States that had yet to be tariffed were left off the list for a long time because they are direct consumer goods, like some of the ones you mentioned. Right. And so the fact that the administration has been reluctant to put these tariffs in place is a clear sign that that message is starting to sink in that you know, never mind whether there's going to be a recession, you're talking about raising taxes on voters as we head into the holiday and then election season. (laughs) So uh, it's pretty clear that that's not what the president wants to do.
0: (laughs) Right. Okay, now... On to where things are right now after Trump's tweet storm just ahead of the G7 meeting um, in Biarritz, In that Twitter tirade on Friday, August 23, apparently in response to China's decision to tariff some goods, Trump wrote, We don't need China, and frankly, we would be far better off without them. And then famously wrote that I hereby order U.S. companies to look for alternatives to China. He also wondered aloud who was the bigger enemy, Xi Jinping or Fed Chair Jay Powell. Um, I don't want to ask you about his motivations again because, uh, you know, they're quite clearly uh, very difficult to understand in a rational framework. But how do you think the American business community uh, and the financial community investors reacted to uh, these tweets and events.
3: It's all about uncertainty. And I think that this is the biggest problem facing the business communities in both China and the United States. Nobody knows what the administration is going to do next. The long term strategy is not clear. And therefore, if you're a corporation, small or large, it's really difficult to make investment decisions even sometimes production decisions. So for example, the president has talked about wanting to encourage companies to come back to the United States to produce, when the reality is for a whole long list of reasons from supply chains to labor costs, to the fact that a lot of these jobs are not jobs that people in America want their kids to have it's not going to happen. So then the question is, do I move some of my supply chain from China to Vietnam or Malaysia or Cambodia? Well, if I'm an American company producing in China, I'm almost certainly there primarily to produce, to sell to Chinese people. That's where the vast majority of American and other foreign investment in China has been going into in recent years. All the big investments certainly are for that. So it's hard to leave. Then if I move to Vietnam, but now the trade deficit with Vietnam might rise and maybe the tariffs will go there. So how, how, how useful is that? Um, so I think it's about uncertainty. This is why if I'm right and a deal is reached by the end of the year, this will have a very positive impact on companies around the world because it will not solve the US-China problem, but it will at least Reduce significantly the level of uncertainty now that is really getting in the way of business investment around the world and job creation.
2: Right, right. So, Andy, talking to the press from Biarritz at G7, uh, after his you know, earlier comments about having second thoughts uh, and his claims about his supposed calls. Uh, from China that the Chinese foreign ministry spokesperson seems to have been completely unaware of. Uh, Trump was asked about the volatility, you know, that all this uncertainty that you're talking about, all these mixed signals was creating in markets. And, and Trump said, sorry, it's the way I negotiate. It's done very well for me over the years. It's doing very well for me, for the country. Uh, y- you've been to China recently, last month, I think was your last trip. Uh, tell us, is it working for him? I mean, how are your Chinese interlocutors responding to all of this? Uh, what's the, the range and the kind of the rough distribution of thinking among the people that you talk to in, in China?
3: Well, I think this gets back to one of the points I made earlier about the difficulties that the president is having with transferring his negotiating tactics from Manhattan real estate to the global scene. It doesn't work the same way and I think he's been frustrated with that and it is obviously having negative consequences here in the US and abroad. Um, my last trip to China, uh, I was there in, in Beijing and Shanghai in July and I met with uh, some Chinese companies, I met with a lot of American companies uh, and also some of my Chinese government contacts and. One of the things that I want to emphasize is I didn't find anybody angry at President Trump or angry at the United States or espousing anti-American views. Now, certainly you go on the Chinese version of Twitter and they're there, but I don't think that's mainstream or part of the government. The main question that I got from absolutely everybody was, what does President Trump want from us? We just don't understand because on some points, his representatives will say, we want you to restructure the nature of your economy. And then the president will come back and say, I just want you to buy more stuff. What is it? Or (laughs) we've agreed to change some of our rules and regulations and we can do it quickly and enforce it effectively via administrative regulations and state cabinet proclamations. But you guys are hung up on changing our laws when we have lots of laws on the books that we don't follow. So what really matters in China, according to the American companies and even Chinese companies that I speak to, is what is the party telling us they really want us to do and not do? And that can be communicated really efficiently and quickly through those regulations that we were just talking about. So I think that especially with my conversations with Chinese government officials that I've known for a long, long time and who feel confident talking privately. They're really just searching for a way to resolve this problem. Now, that doesn't mean they're feeling under the gun. Uh, The Chinese economy has slowed down, but it's been decelerating on a year on year basis for a decade now. It's a little bit slower than it would be, minus the trade dispute, particularly the, the corporate investment side. But they're certainly not struggling, and the numbers are certainly stronger than they are in the United States. But they don't want this to go further. So they're looking for a way to say, hey, what are your key issues? If you really want to focus on intellectual property rights protection, let's do that. And my solution to that is very simple. We in the U.S. government should be going to the Chinese and say, you've already reduced significantly the requirements for foreign companies to enter into joint ventures to do business in China. Do it more. So we've gone from about 45% of foreign companies in joint in in wholly owned foreign companies to now 70%. Let's take it to 100% wholly foreign owned because that would reduce the opportunities for Chinese state-owned enterprises to press for technology transfer.
2: Right. This goes way beyond just getting rid of the joint venture technology transfer requirements clauses. Let's this just get rid of, getting joint, getting rid of joint, ventures. joint ventures. Right.
3: Right. Right. And I'm you know I don't know maybe USTR is asking for this, but I haven't heard that.
0: But, um, Andy, don't you think that the crux of the problem is that, uh, as you said, you know, uh, Trump probably just wants a deal. He wants something that'll you know, help him get elected. And just like with Mexico, he made a big noise and Canada and then basically re-signed a slightly amended version of NAFTA and claimed it as his own. He'd be happy with that. But China is different from Mexico and Canada and Germany and all the other countries that um, Trump is willing to piss off to, uh, you know, make a deal that he can put his name on because there is a, a very large part of the American body politic that has... Uh, a real problem with China. And some of these people actually want a complete shutdown of relations, a complete decoupling. You know, these people include uh, Steve Bannon, who has had an extraordinary influence on politics in the Trump era. So Trump is sort of hemmed in. There's such hostility coming from so many parts of the US government against China that. Nobody really knows what America wants because they're people who want, uh, you know, just about to go to war. They're people who want a complete decoupling. They're business people who have very practical and actually achievable aims. And all of these different actors are exerting influence on the administration and making it impossible for them to get a deal done.
3: Yeah, those are the big questions that we're going to have to wrestle with in the coming years. I also think that one of the biggest problems I see is that Washington is now so focused on the short-term tactics about tariffs and Huawei and stuff like that, I don't hear any conversation going on in Washington about what do we want U.S.-China relations to look like over the next 40 years and how do we get there? We're just leading with the tactics. now. Let me first say, I'm I'm going to disagree with you on one point, which is I don't believe that Donald Trump is hemmed in by those voices that you described. In fact, I'm not sure that Donald Trump is hemmed in on anything. He seems (laughs) to seems to me to be the most powerful American president of our time. You'd probably have to go back to LBJ. So if Donald Trump wants to do X, and there's a lot of sentiment against it, do we think that Republicans in the Senate are going to stop him?
2: Evidently not.
3: So I I think that the president has the political power to do pretty much anything he wants on U.S.-China relations. He just needs to decide, kind of like with gun control, He has the power to go in and say, let's do this or that, and I really don't see the Senate voting using its legislative authority to stop him. So now we get to the question, what does the president want U.S.-China relations to look like? And I don't know the answer to that. I'm not aware of the president having talked about U.S.-China relations in those broad strategic terms beyond the the trade issue. Now there's a lot of other people in Washington who have that. Will you allow me just a minute or two to rant on the issue of engagement versus decoupling? Sure. Absolutely. Because I I think the engagement option for dealing with China versus decoupling and and containment gets a bad rap. I, I think it's really important for us to look back over the last 40 years of engagement and recognize that it has worked pretty well both for Americans and for Chinese citizens, and that should be important to us, too. I'm not talking about the Communist Party, but it's worked well for Chinese citizens. It's worked well for Americans because on the, on the trade side, we've gotten fantastic access. China was an irrelevant player on the global economy uh, up until 20 years ago. Now it's our number one trading partner. Since China joined the WTO, U.S. exports are up to China about 500%, whereas they're only up about 100% to the rest of the world. Prior to the tariff dispute, agricultural exports to China were up over 1,000%, and it was our biggest market. Um, and engagement has worked because we've made progress on a whole range of issues. If you talk to companies and U.S. lawyers, they'll tell you the the IPR situation has improved significantly. Uh, If you read, as I did last night, testimony from DEA officials to Congress, they'll say that engagement with China has made significant progress on dealing with the fentanyl problem, and they're hoping for more progress. Um, I think that It's made progress on the Chinese side. Their standard of living has gone up, and it's been good for the world. Uh, When we started the engagement process, China, as I said, was irrelevant to the global economy. Yet over the last decade, China alone has accounted for a third of global economic growth every year. That's a larger share of global growth than from the US, Hmm. Europe, and Japan combined. So one of the reasons that China is now a major part of the global economy is that they've changed the structure of their economy to make it increasingly more like ours. So, for example, when I was a very junior diplomat in China in the early 80s, there were no private companies at all. You couldn't even find a privately owned restaurant. Now, small entrepreneurial private companies account for 85% of urban employment and all of the net new job creation. Um, So, yeah, are there problems with China? Sure. But we've typically been making progress on difficult issues. And if we are seen by China as wanting to stop them from getting stronger and richer, is that gonna give us more leverage? If we're trying to stop their companies from developing around the world or stop the country from getting wealthier, will they listen to us more on Hong Kong or on Xinjiang? And on the strategic side, yeah, there are tensions in the Taiwan Strait and the East and South China Seas, but over this period of time, Taiwan has become a really wealthy, thriving democracy.
2: That's right. Andy, just now you made reference to Hong Kong and and to Huawei. Uh, You spent a lot of time in Hong Kong. I'm sure you've kept a very close eye on what's happening there right now. Uh, I'm curious about your thoughts on how this very transactional president though actually views Hong Kong in the context of this trade war. Uh, Is he really a part of some nefarious plan to thwart China's global rise to, to, to drive China to its knees? Or is this is this really just all about are are these just lovers Hong Kong and and even Huawei in winning this these trade concessions? Well, uh,
3: there as I said, there are no signs that President Trump has indicated that he's got a strategic process or thought for how to deal with China over the coming decades. So I I don't think he's engaged on that level. There are certainly a lot of people in his administration who want to decouple and disengage and take a more confrontational approach. But when it comes to Hong Kong, let's be clear, I don't think there's any evidence at all that foreign forces, US or otherwise, are behind the protests in Hong Kong. And one of the things that troubled me a lot when I was in Beijing and Shanghai in July was hearing almost all of my Chinese interlocutors, private and government, saying they think this is largely driven by two things. Poor economic cycle right now, a business downturn, and that will go away eventually, Mm -hmm. and foreign interference. And I think this is a significant misread of what's happening in Hong Kong. And it's important in terms of how the Chinese government will deal with the protests. It's a significant misread because I think if you listen to the protesters and you have to listen carefully because they don't operate as an organized group with a spokesman. But if you listen to what they're talking about and what they're asking for, it's not primarily about economics. In my view, it's primarily about the governance by Beijing of Hong Kong the people are simply asking for Beijing to live up to the terms of the basic law which is the chinese government written mini constitution for hong kong which promises a high degree of autonomy for hong kong executive legislative and independent judicial power freedom of speech freedom of conscience mm-hmm. and it says in this basic law that the ultimate aim is universal suffrage and in 1990 the National People's Congress in Beijing wrote an explanation which among other things said a democratic system that suits Hong Kong's reality should gradually be introduced. So I think that the protesters are asking for China to simply abide by the terms of the Basic Law. Now on the foreign side I don't I'm not aware of any evidence um, I'm sure you've seen some of the photographs that have been distributed. There are some people in Hong Kong and China who think that any white guy standing around the protest must be a CIA agent. <laughs> um, I've had a lot of these sent to me, these photos from my Chinese friends. Me too, and me too. I've gone back and said, said, look, you know, let's say the CIA was going to send its agents to participate in the protest. Do you think they'd be tall white guys in Hawaiian shirts? <laughs> um, So, And then the other question, of course, you've had at some points roughly a third of the adult population in Hong Kong out on the streets protesting in a nonviolent way. Uh, That's not something that you can imagine uh, foreign hands organizing.
0: Andy, I'm glad to hear such a clear denunciation of this absurd propaganda, uh, which um, I've had a similar experience of so many friends who've lapped it up and believed it. But I think what Kaiser was asking was, do you think Trump is going to try to use the situation in Hong Kong as leverage in negotiations?
2: Which he seems to be doing.
3: Well, I'm not sure I've seen signs of that. Have you seen something that indicates that, Kaiser?
2: There was that series of tweets where he talked about Hong Kong and seemed to connect it to the idea of, getting a hmm. good deal. He said, you know, when he sort of ambiguously talked about direct talks, he wasn't it wasn't clear whether he was talking about him talking to Xi directly or asking Xi to talk to the people of Hong Kong directly. But you in know, either case, it seemed to implicitly link it to the outcome of trade negotiations with the US.
3: I interpreted that a little bit differently. To me, that was more in line with President Trump's offers to help solve many other global
0: Kashmir, um,
3: yeah. you know, he's offered
2: you can Just send Jared to do it.
3: Kashmir, North Korea, South Korea, <laughs> South Korea, Japan, the Palestinian issue. So I, I took it more along those lines.
2: OK, well, that, that's definitely a more generous and, you know, and, and entirely consistent read. Anyway, you know, I, I think that, that we were talking earlier. You said, you know, most serious people, I think we agree, all economists certainly reject Trump's zero. thinking on, on trade are not worried by by simple trade deficits but i think they, they are pretty you know horrified by the volatility by the wild market gyrations by all you know the damage that the tweets leave in their wake but let's get back to the, what you were talking about before uh, there's a lot of people who and including a lot of people who i i quite admire who do accept his claims about china's culpability in american job losses who do accept these claims about China's unfair trade practices and their failure to live up to WTO promises and, and especially about IP theft. Um, it's, it's gotten to the point right now where we, we see these claims put out there just largely unexamined and many people just simply accept these, including, you know, like I said, many people I, I generally agree with. His methods may be completely wrong, the thinking goes, but it is high time that the U S and its allies took a much harder stance on these issues. Um, you obviously see things differently. Make, make your case to these people about uh, what it is that they've gotten fundamentally wrong about things like WTO commitments and IP. I mean, we, we talked a bit about it, but I think it's worth repeating, though.
3: Yeah, I, those, are, those are good points. Yeah, I, I think that no country, including the United States, has lived up to all of its WTO agreements, but it's clear that China has lived up to many of them. They've lived up to enough of their WTO commitments that they've gone from being an irrelevant market for the United States to now our number one market. Our, as I said before, US exports to China since they joined the WTO are up over 500%, whereas our exports to the rest of the world are up 100%. Prior to the trade dispute, our agricultural exports had gone up a 1,000%. Um, if they didn't live up to their agreements, how was it that prior to the dispute between Trump and Xi, GM was selling more cars, in China every year, about $4 million, than it was selling in the United States. Right. How is it that China became responsible for about 20% of global revenue for companies like uh, Texas Instruments and Intel and Qualcomm and Nike and NVIDIA um, and Boeing? Um, so they, they've clearly lived up to a lot of their agreements. On IP, intellectual property, If you spend time talking to American companies on the ground there, talking to American lawyers in China who are fighting these cases in the system, as I've been doing. I even met with a retired Chinese IP judge on my last trip to Beijing. If you talk to them, they'll tell you that, yeah, problems remain, but it's improved dramatically over the years and that continued engagement is the way to get more progress. The American Chamber of Commerce in Shanghai Uh, several months ago, asked its member companies, these are American companies in the Shanghai area, um, what are your top priorities for the U.S. government to get out of the Chinese government in the current trade talks? And when the issue of forced technology transfer was raised, Mm -hmm. 0.4% of American companies said that was at the top of their list. 0.4%.
2: That includes cyber espionage. That, would that include things like, I mean, I think when people talk about coerced uh, technology transfer, they're talking about you know these onerous agreements, these market access agreements that they made and then regret uh, for, for tech transfer, not maybe cyber theft.
3: Well, all I can tell you, th- I think this is different from cyber theft, but all I can tell you is the wording of the survey by AmCham was about, is forced technology transfer at the top of your list. Okay. Now, look. Cyber is an issue that we have a real problem with China. But like with all the other real problems we have with China, are we going to get more cooperation from them? Are we going to get more progress by saying, we want to stop your country from getting stronger and richer? Or are we going to get more progress by engaging with them as we've done in the past? So I think we're, we're the dispute in among the kind of policy folks and others just thinking about this in the United States comes down to is looking backwards. Have we gotten anything out of engagement or not? Right. Because if you look back over the last 40 years since we reestablished diplomatic relations with China and say, hey, it's all been a waste of time. Nothing has changed. Then I'm with you. But think about the numbers that I just talked about. Think about the 800 million plus Chinese who've moved out of extreme poverty, the fact that the uh, real per capita income has gone up 120% in the last 10 years in China versus about 20% in the United States standard of living. You know, when I started living in China in the early 80s, people who had relatives overseas wanted them to come when they visited and bring them a bicycle or an electric fan. I remember versus, bringing
2: those. those yeah. At, <laughs> uh,
3: yeah, right. Buying and them now at the friendship store. Is, <laughs> Right, and now this is the same country that's responsible for a third of global luxury sales.
2: Right, right. For me, it boils down to this this one idea that I think is, is really a pernicious one. Uh, so many people now seem to simply accept that the Chinese that they only will respond to hardball, that, that no positive inducements can be of any value in negotiation. And I, I just have never seen a real basis on which to to believe that that's true.
3: The facts show otherwise, in my view, in terms of our economic and political relationship with China. So think about it this way. Some of the issues that are really important to us around the world, climate change, uh, drug trafficking, money laundering, terrorism, piracy on the seas, none of these issues can be resolved without cooperation from China. And on all of these issues, we've had good admittedly imperfect cooperation, are we going to get better cooperation from them by saying we're shutting this down and disengaging and decoupling, or are we going to get more cooperation by working with them?
2: It's, yeah, honey versus vinegar, right?
3: Yeah. And, and, you know, if you're concerned about what's happening to Chinese people, um, I think that we need to look at that carefully in context too, because there has always been a surveillance state in China. In the past, it was a very labor-intensive surveillance state, as you, you know. <laughs> the uh, grannies
2: with the armbands, yeah. yeah.
3: That's right. Sitting on the corner every place, um, keeping an eye on everything everybody did. Now the grannies are gone, and now it's a tech-focused one. But I think the vast majority of Chinese people would tell you that they have a lot more personal freedom today than they had 10 or 20 years ago, and vastly more than— Although I, d- I don't think Graham you'd
0: find a single Uyghur not say 10. that, but uh, the vast majority of Han Chinese people, absolutely. <laughs> yes,
3: uh, no question.
2: I'd quibble with 10 years ago. 10 years ago, this would be damn t- free. But.
0: Well,
3: uh, okay. Um, <laughs> I, I, I think that we also need to not get too obsessed with short-term volatility in these things, including personal and political freedom, because that happens in every country. Look at our country. Right. So do you wanna say I'm not gonna deal with America anymore because right now I don't like the things are looking, or do you wanna look at the structural changes and the long term outlook and say how do we how do we work with a country to get to a better place?
2: Another reason to regret she's decision to abolish term limits though.
3: <sighs> oh yeah. And and don't get me wrong, I'm not here saying everything is great. In China or perfect or there aren't a lot of things that they should be doing much better or differently No question. What I'm focused on is how do we get there? and so it it comes down to a very simple thing for me Looking back carefully over the last 40 years has the engagement approach worked? I think it has Um, and how do we get further down the road to where we wanna be in our relationship with China and where Chinese people's lives are, and are we gonna get there more by shutting the door on them or more by working collaboratively with them on the issues where we can, and using the leverage which comes from that collaboration to put pressure on them to move in the right direction on other issues.
0: It's all about how to get there. Andy, on, on that note, um, to conclude, uh, you said earlier that you still think that both sides actually do want a deal and that it may even be possible. I think you said you think it is possible before the end of the year. Uh, what would it take for you to stop believing that a deal is possible? Because, to be frank, for me, I find it hard to see how both sides could meet halfway in the current environment.
3: Well... It's difficult to even say where halfway would be.
0: Well, yeah, I guess that's part of the problem.
3: because we don't, you know we don't know what the two sides have actually been negotiating it over. Neither side has released the details. We do know that u s officials at a senior level have said they were ninety percent close to a deal. And so they're kind of indicating that it blew up over the issue of changes to law or administrative regulations, which, as I said, I think is an easy one that the business community will support. Uh, But my fundamental optimism is based on the fact that President Trump is increasingly aware that he needs a deal, and therefore he can instruct Lighthizer and Mnuchin to approach it in a pragmatic way and get things that are good for the U.S., but also are not bad for China. So, for example, better IP protection is really good for China because the majority of theft of intellectual property rights
2: is by Chinese companies against other Chinese companies. Exactly,
3: by Chinese companies against other Chinese companies. And if the United States government says we want more market access on a wholly foreign-owned basis rather than a joint venture basis. I think the Chinese will go for that because the history shows us that when China joined the WTO and all foreigners came in, what did it do? It made the Chinese economy stronger, it made Chinese companies stronger because competition works.
2: Andy, you know, we could talk to you all day about this, and thank you so much for taking as much time as you already have out of your busy schedule. Uh, I want to move on to recommendations, and mine, I hope, can spark a little bit of discussion. But first, let me remind listeners quickly that the Seneca podcast is powered by SUPChina. If you like what we're doing with Seneca and with the other shows in our network, great shows like the Pan Daily Tech Buzz China, or in China Econ Talk and Top Ta for Talk, the best way to support our work is by subscribing to SUPChina Access. Also, make sure to download our new and vastly improved app. It is a great way to Access all the content, including our podcasts It's a really good way to listen to. And uh give us your feedback on the app. We'd really appreciate it. Okay, under recommendations. Jeremy, kick us off. What do you have for us?
0: I have uh The Secrets of the Hopewell Box, a book uh subtitled Stolen Elections, Southern Politics and a City's Coming of Age. It's by James D. Squires, it's about a political machine in Nashville. Uh-huh. Uh, and it's it's really, really wonderful introduction to the politics of a southern city. And it's written, I'm about halfway through it, so just to you know make sure maybe the ending is terrible. Uh, but I'd like to just read the first couple of sentences just to give you a flavor of how fun it is to read. Okay, great. From my point of view, I level with the pistols on their belts. My granddaddy Dave and his friends were big and dangerous men. I learned to tell one from another by the guns they carried. Blue steel automatics and nickel-plated revolvers. Some stuck handle-up in belt holsters, and others hung upside down under their arms in shoulder harnesses. Anyway, it goes on from there. And it's <laughs> about wow. my, my new hometown. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. And uh, I'd like to thank uh, the Nashvilleian who is China-bound, named Thompson Payne, for
2: turning me on to this book. Well, thanks, Thompson. Great. I'll have to check it out. Andy, what do you have for us this week?
3: Well, I'm in the midst of reading a new book, which I'm really enjoying, and it's not a China book. Uh, It's called The Code, Silicon Valley and the Remaking of America by by Margaret O'Mara. I'm really enjoying it. It's a really interesting read on how the electronics and software industry in the U.S. developed, how Silicon Valley became Silicon Valley. Um, and also somewhat relevant to the debate about China, uh, really strongly uh, explains the role of the federal government in terms of R&D money and procurement dollars in building up our uh, electronics and semiconductor industry. But I'm really enjoying that.
2: Scurrilous lies. It It was scrappy entrepreneurs pulling themselves up by their bootstraps in their garages in Palo Alto. And don't let anyone tell you otherwise. All right. Uh, my recommendation, uh, I hoped, like I said, that, that it would spark some, some discussion. Uh, American Factory by Steven Bogner and Julia Reichert. Uh, have either of you seen this yet?
0: Uh, no,
3: I haven't had a chance to watch it yet.
2: Oh, gosh. I,
0: well, I did publish your rave review it in our, in our newsletter. You, you did, you did. I haven't watched it myself. Right,
2: so I'll, I'll refer people to that rave review in the newsletter. I mean, I just want to, just very quickly, everyone knows that it is the first Netflix project by the Obamas and their uh, production company, Higher Ground. And this, is, this follows, of course, the fortunes of... A shuttered GM plant that is, is acquired by a Chinese company called Fuyao from Fujian province, led by this, this guy straight out of central casting, central committee, central casting, right? This, you know, this toad-like boss. I mean, he's just kind of rotund and oily and, you know, has a real thick provincial accent, big portraits of himself. He's just, just the, the typical Chinese Laoban, uh, in so many ways, but, everyone in this sets out with such good intentions you know he they, they has this auto glass company everyone uh you know is so wildly optimistic about the future that you know Chinese investment in America is going to is going to make and eventually of course the cultural differences emerge as this sort of gaping unbridgeable chasm uh it becomes this kind of horrific just train wreck in in so many ways but there are such lovely glimmers of 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 hope still shot through the whole thing. It's just great. I mean, I think that just by being so even-handed in this, they just allow so much of the complexity to really just come right up and you, you see it all. It's a must viewing. You two absolutely have to see it. Now, In fact, all our listeners would, would just absolutely love this documentary. Uh, I look for it. I've reached out. Hopefully, we're going to get somebody to come on the show to talk about it. Uh, but Barring that, Jeremy, after you've seen it, me and you can, can chat about it. Okay. All right. So definitely see it. So timely. Andy Rothman, thank you once again for this. Always great to talk to you.
3: Thank you, Kaiser and Jeremy. Thanks for having me back.
2: Yeah, that's great. Anytime, man. Jeremy, as always, man, this was really fun.
0: Yeah, thanks. Thank you, Andy.
2: The Seneca Podcast is powered by SupChina and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn, with editing help by Jason McRonald. Drop us an email at syneca at supchina.com. Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at supchina news. And make sure to check out our other podcasts the Tsai Seneca Business Brief, the Pan Daily Tech Buzz China, China Econ Talk, our two shows focused on women, New Voices and Ta for Ta, and the Middle Earth podcast on the culture industry in China. We have a great new show coming in late September. Watch for that. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care.